Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Good to be in front of you again today. I just want to bring you up to speed that the leadership sent out a questionnaire on Wednesday for you to respond to in regards to us reassembling as a church. So I'm going to ask you to check your email because your input is critical uh, to this whole aspect of us coming back together as a church. And uh, so take your time, but please respond ASAP and stay tuned for our plans coming up in September. Uh, if you didn't receive the email, check your junk mail, obviously, or go to our website, fill out the connection card, and we can send you the survey and you can participate in it. On a side note, remember to wash your hands with soap. Use sanitizer when necessary. Stay at home if you're feeling sick. Wear a mask if necessary and practice pandemic stranger danger, right? That's what we need to do. Um, you were watching, uh, hopefully you were watching on the uh, morning show, our World Vision update, and I appreciate Chris from World Vision being on our morning show today. Um, he was instrumental in, in setting up my conversation with Pastor Benson in Tavetta, and uh, I just need to shout out to World Vision uh, in being so proactive. See, one of the families that I was able to visit when uh, I was there last year for the whole chosen uh, um, time they had a little girl named, well, not a young lady named Christine was their daughter. And uh, as I was talking with her and using translation through the World Vision rep, we noticed that Christine was reading her lips and that she could actually barely hear. And we actually thought that maybe Christine was uh, either deaf or, gro uh, or uh, going deaf. And so, you know, I looked at the World Vision rep and I said, we got to do something for her. And of course, uh, I had to leave and we did leave. And after I left, they got Christine to a doctor, and then she was referred to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And it was interesting, because you've got to remember, again, these are third world countries in the area where they don't have access to medical like even we do. And so they took her to the ENT, and they found out that what was causing her hearing loss, it was impacted earwax. Earwax. And so the doctor was actually able to treat Christine, successfully remove the earwax in her ears, and she's actually now able to hear. And uh, I can report that, uh, the, that report from uh, the field reps in Taveta uh, also followed up with her again, and, and her and her family are doing well during this time of COVID. And, uh, and the family here at Seoul who sponsors Christine is even well aware of these great reports. So that's just a little shout out to World Vision um, and that, you know, it's not like we're just oblivious. They, they are on it, and there's communication, and I'm thrilled, so... Here we are. Today we're going to participate in communion, and so you may want to go to the kitchen if you haven't already done so, maybe prepare yourself with whatever elements you have. I'll wait. Okay, no, I won't. Uh, you just have to turn up the volume. That's all you got to do. So uh, the rest of you, while others are running to the kitchen, the rest of you turn with me to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to be picking up our life lesson here, beginning with verse 14. So we're in the portion of Paul's letter where he's responding to the questions that they uh, the Corinthian church has already asked him. And the particular questions that Paul is addressing has to do with the temples that many of the Corinthian Christians had frequented all their lives. A number of them. And again, we're not sure exactly how many, but of a number of these people, these new Christians or even older Christians, were still going for meals um, uh, or take part in various festivals that were held in these uh, temples to different idols. Uh, they were probably going there even for business reasons, doing business deals. Um, 
Uh, and they were still doing this even though they converted to Christianity. Now, their attendance at these pagan temples for meals, for festivals, was starting to upset some of their brothers and sisters whose their own consciences were being troubled over the issue. And that fact alone, Paul addresses back in chapter 8. Um, that was about uh, four, four weeks ago we looked at that. And uh, you can go back and watch the podcast, chapter 8, 1 to 13. And Paul's answer should have probably been enough to persuade them to give up their attendance at these temple feasts and these temple functions. You know, why? For the sake of the body of Christ. For the sake of all their brothers and sisters um, who, you know, were in a state of conflict, right? Just, you know, their consciences were bothered. So, you know, just sacrifice your freedoms a little bit. That's what Paul was asking. And he basically, I presume, and now this is me presuming, that the situation itself would have been enough to clear itself up after Paul addressed it, but it wasn't. So in our section before us today, Paul establishes a second and actually a more serious reason why being involved in the activities taking place in these pagan temples was out of bounds. It was bigger than just the issue of troubled conscience. Now, you need to know that this passage has a long exegetical history. Let me explain what that means. It basically means that there's a whole lot of Bible scholars who have looked at this over the years, especially those who are trying to develop a theology of the Lord's Supper, right? And so a lot of ink has been spilt trying to determine what Paul is and what he is not saying or implying in these words that we're looking at. I am not one of those scholars, and so I'm not going to enter into the debate here, partially because in the interest of time, right? And partially because, frankly, I don't think Paul wrote what he did here for the purpose of developing a full-blown theology of the Lord's Supper. It's not as if one of the Christians sent Paul a letter and said, hey, Paul, can uh, you give us a comprehensive theology of the Lord's Supper? No, that's, that, that's not the question they asked. And it's not the question Paul is responding to here. So, let's jump in. Turn to your Bibles. Let's go. Therefore, starting at verse 14, therefore, let me stop right there. The first rule of any Bible study is that whenever you find a therefore, stop and see what it's there for. You tracking with me? Therefore, and then Paul continues, my dear friends, again, stop, because Paul's letter to the Corinthians, right, and to the Galatians are actually his hardest words to the churches. And so Paul is, he's given, he's letters from a friend. He's telling them what he thinks and what they need to do. And he reminds them, though, in this process of how precious they are to him, even when he speaks directly or it could be interpreted as harshly. Therefore, my dear friends, free, flee from idolatry. There was obviously the indication that of these Christian people are actually practicing and participating in some form of idolatrous practice. It wasn't a hypothetical situation or a warning of potential sin and danger. This is a real problem facing the church in Corinth. And it's clear that from the temptation that Paul had in mind when he wrote verse 13, which we looked at last week, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In Paul's mind, in context, he's actually referring to idolatry. Although it's all-encompassing, the topic is idolatry. So there were idol temples in Corinth. 
On a hill behind the city was the temple of Aphrodite. There were male and female prostitutes who plied their trade in the name of worship of Venus, the god of love. This was the city. Within the city itself were scattered many different types of temples. Their ruins are still available and visible for us to see today. These Christians who had once been idol worshipers, bowing down before these images, sacrificing these images, their lives being controlled by the fear and the philosophy of the Greek and Roman pantheons of God, this is who they once were. Now, Paul's, again, this is me thinking this, I don't think Paul's really concerned at first that they are, you know, going back and bowing down to the idols. I don't think, that's what he means when he says free idol, uh, flee idolatry. <laughs> free idolatry. Flee idolatry. What he has in mind is, is, is not the bowing before an image, but the giving into the temptation to enjoy the atmosphere found at the idol temples. Let me put it this way. There were a lot of fun things going on in regard to idolatry that some of the Corinthians at least were hoping to be able to hang on to. Now, if you would have visited Corinth in the first century, the temple was probably the most exciting place in town. You just picked which, which one you wanted to go to. There you would get the best food, served up in an open-air restaurant. They had probably had the craziest music going on, all the seductive pleasures of uh, wine, women and men, and song, Right? Uh, if you wanted to enjoy yourself in Corinth, you went out to the temple. And I believe Paul is concerned that these Corinthians would be tempted to go back, go back into it in such a degree that ultimately they would find themselves lured back into a belief that um, in these idols and their power. Now, idolatry in the Old Testament was the image and worship of pagan gods. In our day, Idolatry is not something we do, um, at least here in, in, uh, in Canada, outwardly with our body, although there are some, right? But rather, it is anything that replaces God in our priority structure. That's idolatry, right? Idolatry basically occurs when anyone or any but thing uh, becomes more important to you than the living God. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, when we define it that way, it's clear that even in the 21st century, this is the greatest temptation that every one of us faces. You know, we reveal our priorities by our time, by our money, by our thought life, right? True faith does not deal with excess, but with the essence of life. True faith, we're in life. The book of John closes with guard yourself from idols. It's quite interesting that you know, the New Testament focuses on this. And when we fall back into the place where something becomes of greater importance to us and uh, more controlling in our life than God himself, we have succumbed to idolatry. And I think that's why this word from Paul is filled with affection. It's filled with affirmation and I actually believe it's still relevant for us today. And so Paul continues in verse 15, and he writes, I, I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. There are some um, scholars who actually feel he's being very sarcastic here. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, 
We who are many are one body, for we, shall, we all shall share the one loaf. Now, it's interesting, but it's not theologically significant that the normal order of the cup and the bread is reversed, right? doesn't take you to be rocket scientist to see that. Um, as we will soon see, uh, the order here is not the issue. Rather, the fellowship with Jesus and this communal meal is the issue versus fellowship with pagan deities at their communion meals. That's the issue. So the first thing we need to know is that idolatry is the theme that actually holds this whole chapter together. Uh, the pagan sacrifices to idols in Corinth were a tough issue for the church. You know, do you eat the, the meat used in these sacrifices when it's resold in the market? We looked at that. Do you, do you go to dinner in a person's house where they may use the meat? Do you go to dinner just at the temple where it's, you don't really care? Can you participate in the ceremonies themselves? These are the questions the church is dealing with. And so idolatry was not merely a theoretical issue in Corinth. It was a real-life, everyday problem. And the first mistake some of the Corinthians made was that, that they overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper to make them immune to the destructive effects of idolatry. In verses 1 to 14, the Corinthians were basically saying, look at I eat God's sacramental food. That's what they would call this, right? I drink the sacramental drink. I, I've been baptized in Christ in water. Uh, I'm safe. I'm secure so that nothing can threaten me, not even participation with my old friends in the feasts of idolatry. The Lord's Supper, baptism, it makes me secure. Now that's a grave mistake. And the way... Paul shows it up is by comparing the blessing of the Christian ordinance of the Lord's Supper to the blessing of God on Israel when they went through the, the water of the Red Sea, when they ate uh, the miraculous manna in the wilderness, where they drank the miraculous water from the desert rocks. He warns the Corinthians who are relying on the power of food and drink to keep them safe from God's judgment. If I just do this, going to be okay and so the mistake that they were making was that they were overestimating the power of the lord's supper by thinking you know if i just eat this food drink this drink that god will be pleased if i do this god's going to be pleased and we're going to be safe from his judgment even if they went on participating in the idle feasts of their friends and i think actually when you look at it i think this is frightening close to the way that many professing christians actually view the lord's supper today whether it's the Eucharist, communion, whatever you want to call it. We see it as simply a grace dispenser. You go and you get sanitized. Right? And then you can go on with your day. It's sort of like this sacramental or holy antidote that immunizes us against all forms of worldliness. And so if you show up and if you eat and if you drink, you, you know, you're safe. And your rest of your life can then just go on even though you may be entangled in, in the sins with the rest of the world. And to this, what Paul was saying is no, no. You're not safe. I take you back to verse 12 last week where he, remember Paul is basically talking about pride. He says, let him who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. So the Lord's Supper doesn't protect from the judgment of God if we keep craving and grumbling and idolizing the way the world does. Paul shows us that the Israelites came to ruin in the wilderness. 
And he basically says the same thing could happen to us if we're not careful. Remember, we look at history. And so the Corinthians overestimated the power of the Lord's Supper to protect them and, uh, from the destructive effects of idolatry. You know, an antidote to any ill effects that might come in the, poison, in, in, in the tasting of the poison of sin. It, it was almost a twisted concept. They failed to see the purpose of the eating of the bread and the drinking of the cup was to share in the life of Jesus and the fellowship with the rest of the body. And so they underestimated, I would say, the purpose of the Lord's Supper and its true power to fight actually against idolatry and sin. And so both their overestimation of its power to immunize and its underestimation of its purpose to nourish fellowship with Jesus made them vulnerable to sin. And not only sin, but Paul goes on and talks about demons, which is really interesting. And so what we're dealing here is, uh, is something tremendously serious in the life of the church. The Lord's Supper is precious beyond words as a gift from Jesus to his church. Not only as a reminder of his death for us, but also an occasion where he draws near to nourish our intimacy with him and strengthen us as we are constantly reminded by his shed blood and his broken body. There's an intimacy for us as individuals here with Jesus. And yet it's possible to overestimate the power of the Lord's Supper and actually make it an encouragement for sinning. It's just like hand sanitizer, right? And so the Lord's Supper is not an external, automatic impartation of divine protection. It's an experience of personal and spiritual fellowship with Jesus. He is the one who said, in remembrance of me. And so in the eating and in the drinking, by faith, we nourish ourselves on the blessings purchased by Jesus' shed blood and broken body. And so this supper really does help us from destruction by making us want to flee idolatry and not by making us secure in idolatry. In other words, it opens us up. It opens up our spirit as we connect with the Holy Spirit and we see what's right, and we see what's wrong. And when we get into these places, many times it's the Holy Spirit who's just talking to us and saying, look, you need to get out. This is not good for you. And we, our conscience you know, is, is, is touched. We know we need to move. And Paul talks about the participation in the blood of Christ and the partition, participation in the body of Christ. And when we look at the Greek and Paul talks about these things, he, the word he uses for participation is the Greek word koinonia. Now, if you hung around the church for any length of time, you'll recognize that language because that, that Greek word is in the Bible is regularly used when it's talking about fellowship. You know, that's a, that's a church word. It's fellowship time. It's, it's koinonia time. It's time to get together. It's about the body of Christ coming together. And it's very significant. And I think that Paul chose to use that word and not some other word to say what he is trying to articulate to the people. Because, in fact, there is another word that Paul could have used. He could actually translate it partake, partake together. But Paul didn't use that word. 
he does eventually in verse 17 when he talks about the eating of the bread, of, but he doesn't use that word at the beginning. He uses koinonia. So what he's saying, what he's indicating to us is that choice, that aspect of the Lord's Supper that he wants to emphasize is not so much the drinking of the cup, the taking of the bread, um, but rather he is emphasizing how it's a participation together, our fellowship so there's two types of fellowship. There's a the fellowship with Jesus. So when we participate together, it's me and Jesus. But as a church community, when we participate together, it's fellowship. It's koinonia. So it's a both and. And that's what's in Paul's mind. He's trying to get the Corinthians to say, look, it, this is more than just you going up to a dispensing station and walking away. There's more to it. It's about you and Jesus. It's about intimacy. It's about in remembrance of him and we're in it together. Now, to be sure, there's more going on in the Lord's Supper than mere expressions of our fellowship with Jesus. You know, the, the New Testament does talk about these and other things in other places, but that's actually not what's being emphasized here. The emphasis that Paul is making is on our fellowship with Jesus, and along with that, our fellowship with one another. We are united with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are united to one another in Christ. And so notice the unifying language that Paul is using. The cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. And the bread that we break. There's the intimacy, but then there's the corporate. And I hope you see that. I, that the Lord's Supper is both an, an expression of our oneness in Jesus and an agent of unity amongst believers. The church gathers together and they share the, the bread when they observe the supper. It's called a common loaf, you know. But we share it together. That's one of the reasons why I love it so when I see people get up and we move to the communion stations and we move together. It's beautiful. And in doing so, we illustrate sort of like this oneness. And at the same time, and I've already said, they, it actually strengthens our fellowship with one another in the Lord. And we see that when we gather together, when people are connected, with, we pray together, we talk together. It's part of that table. It's part of the family where we take our masks off, right, at the table to eat. And I think that's one of the real tangible benefits of the Lord's Supper you know, it's not merely the fact that we do it at the same time in the same place, although today will be a little bit more different, but it really actually brings us together. It strengthens and nourishes our fellowship and our solidarity with one another because of our common connection in Jesus. As a matter of fact, it's not in my notes, but today as you participate in communion, if you would do me the favor, and I'd love for you to do this, is to... Uh, on your social media, if you are into this, Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, whatever, snap a picture of you and your family doing communion together and post it so that other believers can see, so that we can know that, you know, we're in this together. Because of our, our separation, because of our um, isolation, we still can use the technology to draw us closer together. And so if you tag Soul Winnipeg, uh, that would be fabulous. And uh, that we can see that we're all in this together. So Paul reminds the Corinthians of 
strong fellowship that they have with Christ and with each other through the supper. After calling their attention to that, Paul then draws attention to another reality in which he expects they will not disagree or quarrel. Verse 18. Consider the people of Israel, he says. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Now, in the Old Testament, the whole system of worship, while having several different components, was all one piece. The role of the people of God, what did they do? They brought their sacrifices, whether it was sheep or grain or whatever, they brought their sacrifices to the temple. The role of the priest was to take those, to consecrate them, and then to sacrifice them in the way that God prescribed. And then they would partake of portions of the sacrifice. And so then together, both both the priests and the people benefit from what took place on the altar which was the removal of guilt, the forgiveness of sin, the establishment of peace, and the fellowship with God. But the whole thing, from the very beginning of the bringing of the offering to the point of which some of it was eaten after it was sacrificed, the whole thing was part of the worship of the Lord that took place in the temple in Israel. And so this is what it means that the Israelites shared in the benefits of what happened on the altar. Because then on the altar, God removes the guilt and forgives the sin and he makes peace and he establishes a fellowship of thanksgiving and love. And so to be a sharer in the altar is to share in all those things that God is doing at the altar. And so this is what uh, probably what Paul means in verse 16 when he says that the bread is a sharing in the body of Christ and the cup is a sharing in the blood of Christ. And when Christ was sacrificed on the cross and shed his blood and gave his body for us, God was removing, right, the guilt. He was forgiving sin. He was making peace and establishing fellowship for those who believe. And the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to receive from Jesus this nourishment, this strength, and hope and joy that comes in feasting our souls on all that he purchased for us on the cross, especially his own fellowship, our intimacy with him alone. And we share in the body and the blood by sharing in the benefits that they bought, including, as verse 17 says, our unity in the body of Christ. The supper really is powerful, but not the way the Corinthians were using it. One commentator put it this way. The probable reason for this second example is that it is more closely analogous to the pagan meals which were also involved sacrifice followed by a meal in which the sacrificial food was eaten. Paul's point is this. He seems to be making that the, the eating of the sacrifice was not just an addendum to worship. It wasn't this, a, a subsequent activity unrelated to the worship that occurred in the temple. What Paul is actually saying, it's part of it. And it was this final portion, the, the setting apart, the partaking of some portion of the sacrifice that Paul most likely has in view here. Now at this point, Paul, he pauses for a moment. He's aware of the fact that the Corinthians can see where he's going in all this. It's much like when I write a, a sermon. I, you know, I can, I, can, I can hear people's thoughts. Never mind my own, but I can hear people's thoughts. And I think they're, they're listening to the letter being read, right? Because that's how it was in the church. It was being read out loud. And he can see the arguments going on in their head. He can see, and they can now see where he's going. He's trying to make this connection of eating food in the pagan temples and that this is not just something extra that's happened, 
but it's actually part of the worship in the temple. And they can see that Paul is going to make the point in, that in taking part in that meal and in that worship, Paul makes the point that really they're showing their solidarity, their, even their oneness with the God in whose name the sacrifices are being made. And so Paul knows where, where their thoughts are running. He can almost hear their objections in his head. You know, Paul, Paul, don't you agree with us? You know, you said it. Idols are nothing, and therefore it's not real worship that is taking place. And Paul actually anticipates that objection, and so he takes it up in verse 19 where he says, Do I mean then that food sacrifice to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? He asks the question, right? The answer he gives is a firm no, right? No! But then he goes on, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You know, sometimes in our culture we hear the word demons and we just tune it out. But the reality is that there is a spiritual world. And I think that as Paul read this letter, or as, sorry, as this letter was being read in the church, at this point, it probably got really quiet. It got really quiet. Now, some scholars feel that Paul's making a reference to Deuteronomy 32. And it's interesting, that the interesting thing about this passage in Deuteronomy is that it's not talking about you know, what the pagans had done in the making sacrifices to their idols. It's actually referring to the actions of the Israelites who strayed into sin and into the worship of foreign idols. And so Moses basically describes these events in history of Israel and, and he says that their worship of idols was in fact, it's not the worship of God, it's the worship of demons, right? And that's really what Paul's point to the Corinthians. It's, yeah, it's true. There's, they're not, there's no real idols. There, there's no Apollo. There's no Aphrodite out there. They don't really exist. Right? We, we understand that. And so the sacrifices are, that are made to them are really not to them because they're really not real. But these sacrifices, what Paul's trying to get these people to understand is that these sacrifices are not empty sacrifices. They are not sacrifices to nothing, but are, in fact, sacrifices to demons because demons inhabit and make use of pagan religious systems for their own purposes to enslave and draw people away from the true and living God. Idols weren't real. We, we get that, but the demons are. There's an underlying spiritual issue going on that Paul's trying to address. What pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Verse 20. So it doesn't matter what in the name, you know, what the name of the pagan idol is. It doesn't matter the name. The point is that these people are, are attributing power and authority and worship to something that is not God, to something that is other than the true God. And all things, all such things are idolatry, and as such, they are in the realm of the demonic. Think about that for a while. And that's why Paul says, look, I don't want you to participate with demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord, the table of demons. And then in verse 22 says, are we trying to allow, arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
the grammar that's here expects a no. And uh, we have to remember that Paul is using a terminology and he's trying to uh, address two different Christian groups being here. You have the weaker brother and sister. Remember the full context. You have the weaker brother and sister. In the earlier verses, you have the stronger brothers and sisters, the weaker ones who can't go into the temples. The stronger ones are going, hey, look, at this doesn't bother me at all. And so Paul is wrestling with the difficulty of trying to deal with the mindset of these two groups of believers. He's trying to walk a theological tightrope between two Christian worldviews which circulate around freedom and bondage of past experiences. He's in a difficult place, but he's calling it as it is. And I think the fact that Paul is stressing that we have to abstain from every form of idolatry because the Lord is a jealous God should be sticking out to our mind. See, the term jealousy itself is a powerful love word. Think about that. One is only jealous about someone they love, right? God is emotionally involved with his people who reflect his character, who take on his name to the world. Idolatry destroys this fellowship and, and the evangelistic purpose ultimately. And throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God is a jealous God. The first of the Ten Commandments declares, I'm the Lord your God and brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before or beside me. I'm number one. I'm your focus. I'm your attention. And you know, God is not subject to impulsive whims in which he gets angry if anybody starts looking at anything else. No. No, God's jealousy uh, in Scripture is a, what we would call a proper jealousy. It's a love, you look at it this way, it's a love that's so intense for the object of his love that he's angry when something threatens it. And it forces him to act. And he's not going to stand idly by and let you drift or let me drift away into some idolatrous preoccupation with something of the world. I don't believe that for a second. I think he will strike at it. I think he will destroy it if necessary. And if our affections are so entwined, we're going to get hurt in the process. And we will find ourselves crushed, maybe. Or hurt and crying out to God, God, why did you do this to me? How many times have I heard people say that? But maybe, actually maybe, it's really an act of love from a jealous God who will not allow us to drift into that kind of preoccupation. You know, I can talk about jealousy. I can talk about all the stuff happening in the first century church, but what about today? Can we recognize just how easily this kind of idolatry happens to us today? You know, we can get so wrapped up in sports, for instance, that we live for them, right? They can take over your life. You know, we, we, we begin to make jokes about families, you know, how they're split up because of hockey or football season or baseball season, and, you know, you have sports widows and whatever else, you know, because people now can't take their eyes off the the uh, television when the games are in session. Our family suffers and everything else suffers. So why? So that we can follow a sport or we can follow our team. You know, when something begins to possess you in that way, you're on the verge of idolatry. When what you own begins to own you, it's taking place of God in your life. And you're on the verge of idolatry. 
So Paul says, be careful. Be very careful. You're being assaulted by a temptation to fall again into idolatry. And, and even though the object of your affection, the object of your desire is not necessarily wrong, if you begin to succumb to the atmosphere, if it begins to possess you again, then we find ourselves that we're in trouble of idolatry, of putting something else other than God first in our life. And this is how subtle some of the pressures can be. I'm, I was sitting there thinking and going, okay, what kind, of, what kind of examples can I give? And again, I'm not being moralistic or legalistic. I'm just trying to help you understand what Paul is saying to a first century church and how that applies to us, us today. And so I, I'm doing some stretching, but maybe you'll, you'll understand. Maybe you're, you're a person who just loves to dance, and you know, the place that you dance, you, know, you go to the club. And that's, that's your place. You can go and you can hang out and you can dance. And, and, and really, you're a strong Christian. You have no problem. But this is what Paul would be talking about. When the club becomes more than just that recreation, when it becomes something that you're looking forward to every week, when you can't put it aside and, and, and uh, go to other things, but it then becomes the first and foremost thing that you do above all. How about fishing? Oh, now I'm stepping on some toes, right? You know, fishing can keep you away from doing your ministry. Oh, no, I, I meet with God out on the boat. Yeah, I'm sure you do. I'm not, I'm not arguing against that. But sometimes some things, simple things, become number one in our life. Television. Just watching the tube. It can rob you of, of uh, spending time in the Word. It can rob you of spending time with Life Group. It can rob you of spending time with your family. It becomes number one. You know, maybe you find yourself growing weak over the mention of the name of some sort of uh, rock star or movie star. Ooh. Is that not a form of idolatry? Here's one that will get everybody, including myself. Gourmet eating, right? But gourmet eating to the point that demands your attention and your money. And it's the only thing that you focus on. Is that not a form of idolatry? And again, these things are not wrong in themselves. The last thing I want is people going off on their couch on me. Look at, But it's easy for us to fall prey to something. They lure us into more and more involvement. And before you know it, things in our lives become more important than God. That's idolatry. And before you know it, you have a new God, you have a new love, and you have a new master. Jesus said this. He said, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he'll hold to the one and despise the other. You can't mix them. And that's what he's saying. One of the great and continuing problems in the Christian life is that we want to make a deep, sincere, wholehearted commitment to Christ. I, I think without question, as a believer, you want that. I know I do. Right? We want this deep, wholehearted commitment you know, uh, to Christ. It's expressed when we participate together in the Lord's table. And, and at the same time, people, and, and you have to agree with me on this, we fully want to enjoy ourselves. 
to everything that's in the world. Right? So not only do we want this, but we want a party. And, and it's interesting because, again, that's that theological tightrope. Where do we walk along this? And, and John says the same thing that Jesus says. In essence, he says, if anybody loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but it's of the world. Isn't that interesting? So very simple things can actually become our focus and can become our idols, become our God in our life and not the true living God. And so today's text is really about what you do when you're not at the Lord's Supper. Do you hear that? Today's text is about what you do as a believer when you're not at the Lord's Supper. It's about the threat of idolatry in your everyday life. As that said, let's pray. Lord, we live in a dangerous world and you have made it very clear to us that we often forget it. We often think that we can go along with many of these things and we we find ourselves beginning to be drawn away to lose our fervor for the things of God. We begin to think of life as those around us do, to seek after the same values they do. So help us at that moment, God, to flee idolatry. Help us to understand that that, that we are where we ought to be, even in feeling the temptation, but that our only safeguard is to renew our fellowship with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So guard us in those moments. Lord, I, I realize that we are sheep in the midst of wolves, and so help us every day. And we ask this in your name. Amen. I'd like us to to come to the communion table now. And uh, I trust that you, you've got your elements, and I want to remind you that where you find yourself right now is a safe place. Think about it. You're in your home, possibly. Probably. And it's a safe place. And together, we're, we are now approaching Christ's table. Christ our Lord, right? And he invites us to this table. All who love God, all who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live at peace with one another. And so, take a moment, have your elements ready, because I want to invite you to to come to the table of Jesus. Jesus, our Redeemer, and Jesus invites you and I here as a part of the people of God, koinonia. And so we come to this table, we come humbly, Not because we've earned a place or a seat here, but because we need mercy and we need help. We come because we love God and we want to love God more. That's what the reminder is. We come because Jesus first loved us. He gave himself for us. We come because we need a constant filling of the Holy Spirit. And I think one of the mysteries is is we come because we want to experience the mysteries of God's grace. So take your bread. 
On the night that he was handed over, Jesus had a meal with his friends and he took the bread. And after giving thanks to God, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's participate together. After supper, Jesus took the cup of wine and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and he said, drink this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. So whenever you drink it, remember me. Let's participate. Lord, show us a new revelation of your love and power. Holy Spirit, I I ask you to minister to our spirit at this very moment. And where there is pain, give us peace and mercy. Where there is self-doubt, release, God, a renewed confidence in your ability to work through us. Where there is tired and exhaustion, I ask you to give rest and strength to give understanding and patience. God, help us to submit to Your leading in all things. And Father, where there's spiritual stagnation, I ask You to renew us by revealing Your nearness, by drawing us into a greater intimacy with You. Father, where there's fear, reveal Your love. And release to us your courage, especially during this time of COVID. But God, where there's maybe sin blocking us, I pray that you would reveal it, that you'd break its power over the hold on our lives. And my prayer is that, God, you would give us a greater vision than just for ourselves, that you would continue to raise up leaders and friends to support and encourage us in in our community here at Seoul. And God, bring a quick end to this virus. A healing to our city, our nation, and our world. And I ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So sanctuary, remember that Christ is with you. Remember that he's before you. That he's behind you, that he's beneath you, that he's above you. And remember that he is on your left and he is on your right. That he is with you when you lie down and when you sit down and when you arise. And most importantly, soul, he is in you. Be blessed. Now go and live.